So when it's time to get up in the morning, what do we do? We get up. <laughs> uh, there comes a time. Wait, thank you. Yes. <laughs> there comes a time when we need to wake up, right? That is absolutely necessary for us to get up. Our bodies might be saying one thing. We might be wanting to continue to sleep. We might feel like sleeping. We might not want to wake up, but the time for sleep has ended. And it is time to get out of bed. The light has dawned, the day has begun, and it is necessary to wake up, right? It is good and healthy to get up. This is really what moms and dads are for, aren't they? Moms and dads are glorified alarm clocks, aren't they? We can do other things, but we specialize at waking up our kids. And really, if we love them, we will call them to wake up, won't we? We won't let them sleep all day. That's like child abuse almost, isn't it? We won't let them sleep. We'll wake them up. We'll tell them, you need to be disciplined. You need to get up. When the day dawns, it's time to get up and get going. Amen. I actually, thank you. I actually have a special song that I sing to my kids in order to get them up, which I won't sing. My wife is very happy about that. I am probably the most annoying dad in the world, but you can ask my children about that song some other time if you'd like. <laughs> But we are not primarily concerned about physically waking up here, are we? We are concerned, and we should be concerned, about spiritually waking up. We should be concerned about being aware of the spiritual benefits of Christ. That's what it means to wake up. What it means to wake up is to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the implications on our lives as believers. In other words, what it means to wake up and what we need today is to wake up to the comforts of the gospel. We need to be awakened to the reality of what it means that we have the good news, that we are in Christ. And we must we must wake up to the reality of what that means. In other words, we must have faith. We must be filled with faith. And we must see the reality of Christ. Wake up, church, <laughs> you might say, to the reality of who we are in Christ. And actually, there were times in history that we call the Great Awakening, where the church was awakened to the reality of what they had in Christ and who they were in Christ. So my concern is, how do we know if we're asleep? What are some indicators that maybe we're asleep and we need to wake up? It's, it's good for us to understand what we're talking about here. Well, one of, the, one of the greatest indicators that we are sleeping is that we experience little comfort from the gospel and much more comfort from other things. An indication that we are sleeping is that we are driven by the fear of man rather than recognizing the reality of God. We have a very bad perspective of life. Another indication is that we live as if we were conquered by the world, as if the world had sway over us, as if we were defeated and helpless before the sway and the direction and the power of this world. So what would it look like for us to wake up as a church? 
while we will experience unparalleled comfort in the gospel, we will be awakened, our senses and our, our, our delights will be awakened to the greatness of the treasure and the glories of the God that belong to us. And we'll be more so and more so in, in an unparalleled way encouraged and comforted by the gospel. You'll be less in, inhibited and more bold in proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will live as people who are victorious in God, delivered and helped by the real, true, living God. So you probably already noticed here that there are three sections to this passage. We'll only get to two of them. But three times do we hear this call, awake, awake, in this passage. And that's the sections that we're going to look at today, in two of them at least. And the first, awake, awake, calls for the people. The people are calling God to wake up. <laughs> They're saying, God, you need to wake up. And then the second, awake, awake, and the third, awake, awake, is, is God saying, actually, <laughs> it is you who need to wake up. And so God calls his people, his church, those who are here today to wake up to the reality of all that God is. And so that's what I'm calling you to do today. You know, have you ever had a rebuke in your life that was a rebuke calling you to comfort? <laughs> a rebuke for not finding your comfort in God. Isn't that a rebuke that we can take today? A rebuke that we can handle? But all of us need to hear this rebuke today. We need to be rebuked and called to find our comfort in God and to awake to the reality of all we have in Christ. Now sometimes when we are not feeling comfort, we assume the answer is that God needs to wake up, right? Now we don't think God needs to wake up in the sense that we need to wake up, in the sense of coming to his senses as if God is not all there. Right? We know that God is all there, <laughs> but rather in the sense of taking action. And what I mean by that is we might say, God, you promised. God, I am in a bind. <laughs> when are you going to come through and save me? Uh, when are you going to awake with your mighty power and deliver me from my condition and bring me comfort? Right? It's time. We're waiting. Please come and deliver us. Awake from your slumber. And so in verses 9 through 11, God's people urgently call God to wake up and comfort them by delivering them through a new and greater exodus. And you can hear the earnestness of God's people in verse 9 calling for God to awake. Notice the words, awake, awake. And you have to understand that God's people, as, as we've said over and over and over again, but let's remind ourselves that they're in captivity. Their land is destroyed. They are under bondage. And God promised he would save, but yet nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. Their faith, you might say, was kind of hanging by a thread. You've ever been there before? Their faith is hanging by a thread. They're wondering, how long can I hold on? I don't see you. I don't see anything. We're being, we're being covered in, by, by this unbelieving paganism that surrounds us. What are you doing, Lord? Where are you? When are you going to wake up? 
The urgency in the, wor- in the words here are understandable. And it's actually helpful to understand how the Hebrew was written. You see, they didn't have punctuation. And so you had to kind of make your punctuation with the wording. And so awake, awake is kind of like putting an exclamation mark, <laughs> you know, by doubling it. And that's exactly what's going on here. They're saying awake, awake. It's saying urgently, passionately calling God to wake up. Do not delay. And there's no doubt what they want God to do. They want God to act in his awesome power and his might to save them. Notice the words there. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And we know what the arm of the Lord means, right? We know it means power and might and strength. They want God to unveil his strength in their behalf. And it's kind of like if someone was picking on my kids, right? And I had a long sleeve shirt on, and I kind of started to unroll my sleeves, you know, and my bulging muscles started to show themselves and come out. My wife's shaking her head no. (laughs) Right? And, and And so they could see the might and the power of their dad, and they would run away in fear. This is kind of what they want God to do for them. They are being messed with. They're in captivity. They're being bullied around, and they want God to do something for them. They want God to bring them comfort. Does this remind you of a New Testament story where there's a big storm, and Jesus is asleep in the boat, right? And the disciples are like, why are you sleeping at a time like this? See, it's not a question of God's ability. It's not a question of whether God can do anything. It's more of a question of this apparent passivity. (laughs) Why are you not doing anything when we need you? And so it often appears this way, doesn't it, to us? It appears like God is sleeping in our lives. And the reason the people are so urgently The reason they're so urgent here, which is really uh, an urgency of faith, right, is they have not forgotten the past works of God. They want God to do something again like he has done in the past. And we hear that in verses 9 through 10. Listen to these words and notice that this, which is often the case, this unbelief is mixed with faith, isn't it? There's this faith mixed into this cry to God. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So God has has dealt with them in such a way in the past that he has revealed himself to them. He has set a pattern and revealed his name to them as their savior. And God's people of faith remember what God has done. And that's what enables them to continue on in the faith and the condition they are in right now is they remember what God has done. That's a reminder that we as God's people must remember what God has done in the past if we're to continue on in faith today. But God's people haven't forgotten. They have remembered. And that's what it means to live by faith, isn't it? They remember that God has made a name for himself. He has revealed himself in a way by delivering them. Now, the, the name Rahab here refers to a pagan myth of a monster, a sea monster, that was defeated. And Rahab is used here to illustrate 
what they're requesting for God to do because they would have understood what is being referred to here. And Isaiah uses or borrows this pagan myth, which he doesn't believe is true, in order to help illustrate what God has done in defeating the Egyptian monster through the Red Sea. And so unlike mythical Rahab, God did actually deliver his people through the Red Sea, didn't he? Against Pharaoh and his mighty, powerful army when he crossed the Red Sea and delivered them to victory. And so this is what what the people want God to do for them in delivering them. They literally were redeemed by God. And yet, although what we see here is the pattern of God delivering his people, yet what God's people want God to do is something much greater than what he did in delivering his people from Egypt. They are looking for God to do something that is much greater in unparalleled deliverance through the Messiah. Listen to what we read in verse 11. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So yes, there is a picture of the deliverance from Babylon in here, isn't there? There's a sense to which they really were redeemed when God delivered them from Babylon, sort of like they were from Egypt, right? And they had a sense of gladness and joy, and and there's a sense to where some of their sorrows passed away. But there is something much greater than the deliverance from Babylon that God's people are calling for here. They're asking for a deliverance that Babylon will only slightly picture, will only be a shadow of, the ultimate and greater deliverance that will come through the Messiah. This accomplishment that Christ did through the cross would completely take away all sighing and would bring forth the greatest, boundless, eternal joy that only this victory could accomplish. Forever all sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And it was at the cross that Jesus defeated this monster named Satan with a decisive fatal blow. And today, what does he do? Today he roams around like this defeated dragon, angry and bitter and wanting to take down everyone he can on his path. To defeat because he knows that his time is short you know if you give uh, an angry wrathful enemy a fatal blow and they have no interest in repenting and turning what are they going to do they're going to become more angry and more angry and they're going to want to take down everyone they can with them and that's exactly what the devil is doing today and this is why we must be alert today and arm ourselves We must not be terrified and afraid of the devil. That is not the right response. But yet we must be wise and alert and ready and prepared. We long to experience the fullness of the victory that Christ has accomplished. And we know that someday he's returning and we long for his return. And we echo these words as we long for the return of Christ that will come with all the blessings and the benefits that he has accomplished through the cross. And we'll experience the fullness of it. There'll be unmixed, everlasting joy. So what what does God have to say in response to the cry of his people to awaken? 
Well, he assures them that he is not asleep. And he says that he has provided for them all the comfort they will ever need. Notice, he says this. He says, I, I am he. (laughs) This is a response to the double awake, awake that the people called out for God to do. And it's as if God is saying, I am awake. I am awake. I, I am he. I know your concerns. I am aware of what's going on with you. And so what we need to understand today, and this is so important for his church to recognize this, that God takes seriously his role as your comforter. He guards jealously his position as your comforter. He says, I, I am he who comforts you. God knows that the only real comfort that you and I can have is through himself. And God knows that he has abundant, uh, unmeasured comfort for his people. Abounding comfort. And he wants us to experience the fullness of that comfort. And the question is, why in the world would God be so passionate about your comfort? Why would he be so passionate? Over and over and over again, we see comfort, comfort, comfort. Why is God so concerned about this? And the answer is because it is for your good and for his glory. When we are filled with the comfort of God, God is glorified by being our provider. We are acknowledging and magnifying God as our Savior when we say He is our comfort. We are glorifying God by finding our comfort in Him. Have you ever thought about that? God is glorified when we say, My sufficiency, my comfort, my joy, my everything is in Christ. And He is magnified by being our God and our King. He loves it when we find our comfort in Him. One way that God shows his concern for our comfort is by exposing what prohibits us from experiencing our comfort in him. And perhaps there's no greater threat to our comfort than the fear of man. Notice the words here. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? Imagine what it would have been like for God's people here. Imagine the fear that they would have experienced. And it's so hard for us to imagine the terror that they would have faced when they would have, when they would have heard the Assyrians or the Babylonians, the the, the reports and the rumors of the, the great and mighty Babylonians in the Assyrians. There's nothing worse than a siege, right? You wouldn't give yourselves over to these people. All they would do is they would come and they would stand before your city and they would not allow anyone to enter and anyone to leave and you would slowly die. You would slowly die of starvation. There was nothing more terrifying than these nations. And they would want to instill that terror in you. They would want to do everything they could to make you terrified. How could Israel not be afraid? And you say, how could they not be afraid? How could they not be in terror? 
And I want us to think about all the things around us that we are terrified of. And I think they're so ingrained in our lives that we don't even think about them. We think this is normal. We think this is the way of life, don't we? Maybe it's losing our health. Maybe it's COVID. Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's our money. We have so many things that we fear. So what is the answer to the problem of comfort? What is the answer to the problem of the fear that sucks away our comfort? Well, a little perspective. And what is man like? Well, first of all, we've got to look at man. If we're to have a perspective, we've got to look at man and the reality of who we are. And what does it say here? It says man is temporal. Man dies. You know, the one chief characteristic of us that we see all around us, everywhere, is that man is temporal. He dies. Everyone dies. It's an inescapable reality. And the reality is that every one of us, our, our lives are short. And all our glory fades away, doesn't it? In other words, we are kind of like grass. And that's unflattering, isn't it? But it's true. God made us like grass. We are fragile, temporal, short-lived, and God created us that way. So what is God like, on the other hand? How are we to understand the reality of our God in comparison to man? Well, it says here, he is the creator. He is the sustainer of everything. He holds everything in its place. He made everything out of absolutely nothing. Out of, out of nothing, he created everything that exists. He stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth. He alone is the uncreated. And that means he existed for eternity. And so what does this mean about the threat of man? What is the reality about the threat that we face all the time? And this means that man is limited. His power is limited. He is a creature with the strength of a creature. And this means in the grand scheme of things, and this is really what's brought out here, isn't it? That what is the wrath of man? The wrath of man at most is a few days. And then he passes away. If someone's angry at you, how long are they angry at you? <laughs> A few days at most. Why would we fear the wrath of man? Why would we ever fear what man can do for us, to us? What it means is that man's wrath is not our biggest threat. You ever thought about that before? Of all the threats in the world, there's only one thing that we should fear. There's only one wrath that we should be concerned about. And that is God's wrath, right? There is nothing else that really we should fear rather than the wrath of God. It is amazing that we are so concerned about man and so little concerned about God. And at the same time, what does that mean to those who are under God's favor? What does that mean about the fear of man? It means there is nothing to fear about the wrath of man. If you are under God's favor, then what can man do to you? He can do nothing. If you are driven by the fear of man, what that means is that you have forgotten God. And worse than that, what it means is that you are in denial of the reality of who God is. For those of us, on the other hand, who have the right perspective of God, the fear of man looks absurd. Psalm 118 verse 6 tells it this way, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
Now, this is not saying that these things are not harmful in themselves. There is a sense where man is harmful, isn't he? But in comparison to God, there is absolutely nothing to fear. <laughs> That's the point. So yes, man can do damage in a temporal and insignificant way, ultimately. But in comparison to God, they can do nothing. This perspective of the nature of man and God must be the grid through which we view all of life. We are to be people who are living by faith. And to live by faith, we must see life through the grid of who God is and who man is. God is the eternal creator and man is the temporal created. He is our savior. He is our only hope of deliverance. And this is the only way we can respond right to this life, rather than fear man. And this is the only way we can identify what the real problem is. Only with this perspective, only through God's word, can we identify that our problem in life is not our boss. That our problem in life is not our kids or our spouse or our friends who might be against us or lack of money or failure in our health. Those are not the real problems in this life. The only real problem in this life is the is being outside of the favor of God. That is the only real problem. Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus said it this way, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We need to have the right perspective. Another way God brings comfort to us is by confirming to us, in the midst of our struggle and our trial and our pain, that victory awaits us because of our relationship with him. We see that in verses 14 through 16. He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And notice what he says here. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth. And saying to Zion, you are my people. How comforting is it to know that our trial and our pain and our suffering is going to be short-lived. That it is just a few days and God says, I will take care of you. I will take care of you. And God says the reason he's going to take care of you, and it's really significant here. We begin with verse 15 where he says, I am the Lord your God, right? And then at the end of verse 16, he says, you are my people. Notice the reason God is going to take care of us is because we are in a right relationship with God. He is your God and you are his people. What greater words can we possibly hear than that? God has bound himself to care for you. And what greater comfort can we have than knowing that God is for us? And if God is for us, then who can be against us? And so although we feel like God is the one who needs to wake up, God says the truth is and the reality is that you need to wake up to the reality of the gospel. God calls on his people to awaken to the comfort of the gospel of grace. And God's people, it says here, have, have the comfort of knowing that the wrath of God has been drunk to its full. L listen to verse 17. Wake yourself. 
Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And it's important to understand the cup here refers to the cup of God's wrath. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, take this cup away from me and not my will but yours be done. What he was talking about was not the physical pain, but the wrath of God that he was going to be drinking. And that's exactly what it's talking about here, the cup of the wrath of God that was poured out on his people. And God's cup of wrath was poured out through the Babylonians. God used the Babylonians as a means to pour out his wrath on his people. And some of us do not understand still what we need to understand, that it's not the Babylonians who are the problem. It's not the Babylonians who we need to reckon with. It's God whom we need to reckon with. The picture here is of drinking to the very last drop of the entire cup. And so what we see is the people who are drunk on this wine. They are so drunk, they are staggering. This is almost too much for them to handle. And they can't handle anymore. They're in such despair and distraught. But notice God says something comforting here. He says something that would relieve them of their despair. He says, awake, awake, and rise from your despair. And he doesn't tell us why yet. He just says, arise from your despair. But he does say that you have drunk to the full the dregs of the wrath of God. And the problem is that there was no man who could relieve them of their discomfort. There was no man who could deliver them. And that's what verses 18 through 19 says. And isn't that the reality for each one of us? None of us can deliver us from the wrath of God. None of us can save us and bring us comfort. And so the answer comes from the most surprising place. And maybe not surprising to us, but it should be surprising. The one whose wrath was kindled is the one who's going to remove his wrath from them. That's what it says here. God tells them that I am going to remove the cup of wrath from you. And I will put it on your enemies. And I will give it to your enemies. The only one who can take the cup of wrath from them is the one who gave it to them. And so God says that's exactly what I'm going to do in verses 21 through 23. Now we're not told here how he's going to do that. We'll find out in, uh, not next week, but the following week in chapter 52 verse 13 through chapter 53. God is going to explain exactly how he's going to remove that cup. But here he says, I will remove it. I will remove it from you. The good news is not only that God will remove it, but he will give it to their oppressors. Those who made them bow down, who passed over them, who rode on their backs, will be given the very cup themselves. One commentator explained how God will do this in this way. His most potent a hundred-proof judgment, he will take it and he will shove it down the throat of the Babylonians. Does God ever appear to be sleeping to you? Do you ever wonder why God seems to be sleeping when you're in the midst of your storm? Well, we need to understand that God doesn't sleep, does he? God doesn't sleep. Instead, as one man put it, God has an intentional waiting system built into our experience of him. <laughs> what looks like God sleeping is really him waiting 
and working behind the scenes to fulfill his purposes. It is not God who needs to wake up. It's the people of God who need to wake up. It's the church of God who need to be awakened from their slumber. We need to wake up from our unbelief, from our despair, from our discouragement, from our unrest and our lack of peace. This can only come through a renewed awareness of the profound reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be aware again and renewed in our awareness of who God is and what he has done. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. God is the one who saves. And there is no one else. He has made some unimaginably great promises to his people. Does this awaken your heart? How can we possibly fall asleep when God has given us all the comfort we could ever need? You know, one of the problems throughout college is that I fell asleep in just about every class. Some physical issue I had. (laughs) I fell asleep all the time. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would not fall asleep that we would stay awake and that that would be our witness to the world. And if we are awake, we will look very different than the world, won't we? We will be bolder in our proclamation of the gospel. We will fear man less. We will have more of an inexplainable peace and comfort and joy. And we will live victoriously in Christ as delivered people, even in the midst of pain and suffering and sorrow and in tears. And when we live this way, we must be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Because people will want to know what, is, what do we have that is different than what they have. So take heart, church. Be of good cheer. Let us pray that God would open our eyes and let us read God's word. Let us take in God's word of comfort. For in there is everything we need. God has given us everything we need to be awake and alert to his comfort. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you, God. We thank you, God, for your great comfort. Lord, we could search the heavens and the earth to find comfort everywhere, but we would find it nowhere but in you. You are the only place where comfort is to be found. And we thank you, God, that you have brought us comfort through the cross, that you have come to us and you have died for us so that we might know what it means to be comforted. God, I pray that you would open our eyes up. I pray that this church would be aware of the great news of the gospel. I pray that we would live in that awareness and rejoice in our Savior. And Lord, I pray that if anyone in here has no comfort, I pray that if anyone in here is outside of the comfort of the gospel, I pray that you would save them today and they might for the first time know the comfort that only you can bring of your great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.